Coming up next, the bookening reads Ernest Hemingway's East of Eden. <coughs> you did the same thing last time. It I was know, Pride, I, and I was like Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> John Steinbeck's immortal Pride and Prejudice. Coming up next, the bookening reads Ernest Hemingway's For Whom the Bell Tolls. This is Nathan Alberson. I am, of course, as always, your humble and obedient host. Very humble, very obedient, because I love you. And I am joined today by two other people that I love, by Pastor Jacob Menzel, the pastor who is a master of books. Reading. Reading, yes. That's what it was, yes. How are you doing today, Jay? I'm doing pretty good. How about you? glad to hear it. Oh, you know, I am sick, but I'm here. And I'm also joined by Mr. Brandon Chastine. How you doing, Brandon? Doing grand. Grand? <laughs> Trying to change it up some. <laughs> and uh, Grande. Grande. Bueno. Arriba! <laughs> I am grande. I'm doing bueno. You're doing bueno. <clears throat> Today we are going to talk about a very interesting book. Ernest Hemingway's For Whom the Bell Tolls, the book that made Maxwell Perkins, Hemingway's editor, say, if the function of a writer is to reveal reality, no one has ever so completely performed it. So let's dive right in. Oh my goodness, what's that sound? Brandon Chastine's immortal six-shooters that he is firing into the air, even as a speed. <laughs> Yeehaw! Meaning that it is now time for the Contextual Texan, the part of the program where Brandon provides some much-needed context for our work. Today, of course, he'll be providing context for whom the bell tolls. Brandon, take it away. Your mission today is to provide the context all while standing on your head. Oh, boy. Here I go. Jake, you want to grab my legs? I'll hold no. the other one. No, oh, Jake's not going to grab I'm my legs. I'm just going to hold your one leg awkwardly. <laughs> I just have one leg, as we all know. Okay. So I don't always provide historical context but you kind of have to for this novel because Hemingway was actually a part of the Spanish Civil War. He went over one of these writers, kind of actually like Kipling, who, funny enough, Hemingway admired Kipling. He actually admired his writing style. Um, they were both journalists. Yeah, they were both journalists, and so that was their training was this journalistic background. And so Steinbeck was very similar. And yet it's interesting to look at Steinbeck and then to look at Hemingway because they ended up in very different places. And part of that has to do with the artistic milieu they were part of, to use a pretentious word there for you. Hemingway, he, start, he went to World War I. He was an ambulance driver, right? He came back. He was part of this disillusioned lost generation. Now, what does that mean? I, Nathan pointed out that I talk a lot about modernism. Well, that's, his, that's because we've done a lot of modernist stuff so far. He said it to me privately. This is this is an off the mic conversation that happened. And um, you guys remember the famous booketing moment where I talked about modernism, and then I said, "Brandon, all you ever want to talk about is modernism." Okay, he was part of this lost generation that was in the early twenties, right after World War One. They were disillusioned with the world. They were disillusioned with, especially the West and Western nations. And so, for a lot of the young artists and writers at the time, that meant fleeing America and going to France. 
to Paris and where you had these little communities develop, Gertrude Stein was the matriarch of the main little group of artists that fled to Paris right after World War I. And if you've ever, I think there's a, what's what's the movie called that Woody Allen did? Um, oh, uh, Midnight in Paris. Midnight in Paris, yeah. That's all about this generation. And so you had at the same time in one location, you had F. Scott Fitzgerald, you had James Joyce, you had Gertrude Stein. You also had guys like uh, Pablo Picasso and these famous artists that were coming. And they were all together. And the main thing that they had was that they wanted to experiment with art. Ezra Pound was one of if – if Gertrude Stein was the matriarch, Ezra Pound was the father. And his mantra was to make it new. And what he was really good at was finding young writers, going out, and getting them published. And so he met Hemingway in Paris, and he made Hemingway famous. Right? And so his first book was all about this lost generation that Gertrude Stein supposedly defined them as. They were – the lost generation. They were the generation who had no purpose other than just to make art and enjoy life, right? And so you see this coming out in Hemingway's book because where this led them to is this angst about the purpose of life. If if society, if the old society is deteriorating, what is going to be left? And the answer for these guys was um, socially active, socially activist artists, right? They were going to make the world new. They were going to go out and they were going to stand in the rubble and they were going to repair it. And you still see, I mean, you see the effects of this moving through the 60s. It starts, stuff like this, if you know that this happened in the 20s, what happened with the rest of uh, literary history throughout the 1900s begins to make some sense to you. Um, Because that purpose, that drive that they had would eventually burn out. And so Hemingway himself, he ended his life with suicide, right? There, you can't get to where they were trying to go. So he was a part of these socialist movements. He signed some sort of uh, statement that the socialist Russia was not quite as bad as people thought they were, right? And so they were driving towards this uh, communist slash socialist utopia is what they were hoping for. And so you see that play out in the novel here with the support that all these young people gave to the Spanish Civil War. So that's some background on Hemingway and where he got to the Spanish Civil War. Where that where it bisects with what happens in this book is this was a very real moment that Hemingway would have been a part of. He he did go and he reported as a journalist on the Spanish Civil War. But this was a, this was important for the writers at the time because this was sort of a crisis moment. It represented to them what they were all about. You know, you had the fascists and you had the socialists, and they were fighting. And ultimately, some historical spoilers for you, the fascists win, the socialists do not win, and then you get years of, um, what was his name? Franco. Franco. Franco ruled Spain for for years, decades, yeah. yeah. yeah but it didn't go much better in the other places where the communists won, either in Cuba or in uh, Russia. And so this period of art that gathered in Paris that was all founded on disillusionment and making the world new again it didn't lead them anywhere, right? The societies that they held up, and the, throughout this book, one of the big questions is, what fills the gap of the church? So they keep talking about the fact that the church and the pastors are no more. You don't have the church anymore, because that's that goes hand in hand with socialism, is the death of religion. And so what fills that gap? And obviously, I mean, this goes back to like Walt Whitman, some of these early Americanists. So they thought that they were 
making something new, but they actually weren't. Right. So as early as Walt Whitman, he was saying that you had the poets were going to be the priests of the world. And this was, I mean, this was back in the mid 1800s. That's part of the irony here is they thought that they were making something new, but they weren't. I mean, Walt Whitman had his little group of guys. Oscar Wilde had his little group of guys. Uh, Virginia Woolf had her group of guys and gals, right? And what it comes down to is just they're wanting to idolize and worship what they would think was their poetry, but, I mean, it's actually just pleasure, right, and living in the moment, living for yourself in the now. But what this does is it starts a very different trajectory in art. And so one of the interesting things to do, like I said, was, is to compare where Hemingway goes versus where Steinbeck goes, right? Hemingway was popular despite the fact that he really wasn't trying to write populist literature, but he was still very popular because the modernists, they didn't care about who read their stuff. Now, maybe that's arguable with Hemingway. And that's something to talk about. But like Gertrude Stein, she was all about experimentation and weird stream of consciousness stuff. So you, you would get the same thing with jo- James Joyce. People, p- the only reason people read Finnegan's Wake was because it was so different, not because anyone actually liked it. No one it, today even understands what it's about. <clears throat> so you get that in art. You see it with Pablo Picasso. You see it with T.S. Eliot in his experimentation with poetry. They're trying to make something out of what they see to be the rubble of the world after World War I. Right. Truth is broken down. Morals are broken down. Society's broken down. They hate industrial capitalism. So what's the response? With Hemingway, he adopts uh, a, a very stark journalistic style. And it's not just in his language. The people call it is the iceberg theory. The, it's the, the theory. That, so it's not just the theory that his language is stark because his sentences aren't always what people would think would be Hemingway sentences. Sometimes they're fairly long and complex and... You know, they're not all these short snippets that I think people assume Hemingway writes. What it really means is that the story itself is truncated. Everything is trimmed off the story until all that you have is what's necessary for the story to have some sort of meaning for you. Right. And so in this case, you have it starting out with Robert Jordan and the Pine Needles, and then it ends with Robert Jordan and the Pine Needles. There's sort of a continuity there, but you don't actually see what happens at the end. Right. It's all... So you don't – I won't say what happens, but you don't see what happens, right? And that's, that's important for Hemingway because he thinks that his stories need to be trimmed to the point where all that's left is what can possibly create meaning for the reader or the illusion of meaning. If you liken this to Steinbeck, it's very different, right? Steinbeck gives you everything, right? He's, he's, like we said, he's the guy, he's sitting down by the fire, he's telling this story to you, he's very present, he's very much a part of the storytelling, he's giving you details that you don't even need to know about, like his mother flying the airplane, all these things that are happening that Hemingway would have never done. Hemingway would have cut that out, he would have said, cut it, cut it, cut it. And this comes out of this modernist trend of like the imagism with Ezra Pound, they, they thought that it had to be the sharp crystal image. And hopefully with that sharp crystal image, you could actually finally get to something that meant something. And that, I mean, it's as empty as it sounds. They were hoping through art to make the world mean something. And so that, I think, provides a good background for getting into this book because through art, through 
this done quote and then through a story built out of it, he's trying to make sense of his father's suicide, death. Hemingway's father did commit suicide, yep. shot himself, much yep. like what Robert Jordan describes, I believe. Yeah. And so, he, the, yeah, that's that's what their art is aiming at, is not just to entertain you, but to make the world mean something. And I think it is important to remember that World War II, or World War War I, it's kind of, it gets buried underneath World War II in our memories of it, but World War I was a horrific yeah. war. I mean, it was devastating, and it was the death of a lot of these old cultures. I mean, it was literally, you had cavalrys on horses riding into machine gun fire and just getting blown to pieces, and so it was this horrible kind of old versus new. Um, not to excuse some of the decadent excess that the lost generation indulged in. But I think it's important to understand that they weren't just a bunch of hippie whiners that, you know, didn't come out of a place of real pain, at least. Now, should they have dealt with it better? Sure. Yeah, you see it all over. You also see it with another group of writers that went a very different direction that our listeners are probably more familiar with, which is C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien. Mm -hmm. They were also a part of World War I. They saw the horrors, and it comes out in their writing as well. Is it a Paralandra where you have the beast, that demonic figure? What's what's his name? Watson or Weston? Weston. Yeah. Weston, yeah. I mean, he's he's very much a type of this character that would be created out of the horrors of World War One. Mm. This cold, mechanical figure. Because the terror of just cold, detached authority doing horrible things to people and machinery that becomes the nightmare of these guys and so their response is to have the world turning and love and drink and sex and poetry you know the opposite extreme the stuff that would lead to the 60s and to small grassroots politics and then bernie sanders winning in indiana (laughs) and fascist donald trump (laughs) and fascist donald trump we are caught between a fascist and a communist in our home state well as we're recording this trump and sanders were just just won the uh whatchamacallit just yesterday the day before primaries yeah the primaries just the other day so one other thing to note just of interest is that this Hemingway, that branch of the lost generation, that would develop into the art that is admired by the Academy today. So James Joyce is the big exemplar of that. Um, And what it becomes is everyone who knows all, one thing that they were big on, and Hemingway not as much, but was a deep knowledge of literature, literary history. And so the more you could reference, the better. And so the denser it became, the harder it was to understand and therefore for the elite. So it became a kind of Gnosticism. Again, back to the point that these guys raised art up to the level of a religion. Well, if you could make God out of art, these guys would have done it. They're about the most talented people that we've had in the last couple hundred years and Mm -hmm. they did their best and it ended in death and hedonism and despair i guess gertrude stein lived to be about 70 and died of cancer but fitzgerald died young of alcohol and hard living hemingway shot himself i don't know what happened to joyce what happened to joyce did he did he become a venerable old man yeah he died old joyce is a weird character though you get the sense that he never really took anything seriously Hmm. now how does the academy feel about hemingway in that I know that they like his style, but it feels like there's some unease when I look at 
their you know what they'd call his gender politics and all these different he represents a certain sort of man that's not much in vogue these days yeah um all his adventuring all his you know being off the coast of cuba looking for bombs and stuff uh how does the academy deal with him as a as a man's man and all this kind of stuff. Do they excuse that because he was such a great stylist? Uh, not just because he was a great stylist, but also because he was a socialist. He was very much a political activist. And um, I guess the other thing to mention is Robert Jordan once says that he may not be able to go home because he's probably marked now as a red supporter, mm-hmm. right? And Hemingway had that fear constantly. He thought the FBI was on to him, and it turns out the FBI was monitoring him because he lived in Cuba. And um, it was a it was a terrifying time to be a, someone who didn't support the government as well with McCarthyism, mm-hmm. and so some of the paranoia was founded. But all that to say, yeah, they they like his politics, they like his style, they don't like his bull killing, <laughs> and they don't like his portrayal of women. So he's yeah, people have a troubled relationship with him. They don't know what to do with him. They'll read him. They'll admire some of what he says. Well, he's hard to ignore, and we didn't feel like we could ignore him on the bookening, even though he's got some troublesome aspects, which we'll get into. But, yeah, I mean, he's a huge talent. Brennan, how did Hemingway get his forehead scar? (laughs) Bullfighting, as he would probably want you to think. (laughs) No, he was using using the bathroom, and I don't quite understand the whole mechanism surrounding it, but apparently there was a toilet chain— and he pulled on it, which then caused the skylight to fall in on his head and crack his head and g- gave him an eternal scar. So Yeah, I'm pretty sure he just drunkenly pulled on a chain in a yeah. Parisian bathroom thinking it would flush the toilet and instead he pulled the roof down on his head. <laughs> it's pretty funny. So, uh, I don't know. I thought that was worth mentioning. Yeah. I'm like, oh, what's that sound? It's the airplane going overhead. Oh, no. Indicating baggage check. Not bombs. No. This is the... No, it's not the shark But I don't like them just the same. The shark-like metal sharks flying through the air. Oh, yeah. That was quite the image, wasn't it? (laughs) That was a good image. So uh, what uh, kind of baggage did you guys bring to this book? I didn't bring a lot of baggage. Had you read any Hemingway before? No, I hadn't read Hemingway. Did you have an idea of Hemingway? I had high expectations because I've I've heard so many people call him a master. So I was just looking forward to something compelling and manful and bull riding ish, and but I didn't have I didn't have any expectations beyond that. Brandon, the baggage I brought was I mean I've read him in the past and enjoyed him. Beyond that, I didn't have many expectations that were let down or brought up by my reading of it this time. What's your past with Hemingway? My past with Hemingway was reading some short stories back in high school, and then I didn't really read any of his novels until I was in college when I read for him The Bell Tolls, and I I thought it was wonderful. I said everything that I was thinking at the time. Mm. Um, Reading him this time, I mean... I think you can grow out of his philosophy. Yeah. Right. yeah he seems like he's caught in this perpetual, this angsty youth philosophy. Yeah. Um, I discovered Hemingway in my late teens, early 20s. I think the first story I read was Hills with White Elephants, which is yeah. a terrific short story, and it definitely does that iceberg theory where it has very 
scant details. Yeah, that's, but that's the one people mostly point to. Yeah, packs a real punch. And then, you know, I think I read most of the stories in most of the classics, Nose of Kilimanjaro, uh, The Killers, all that stuff. I read his novels, The Sun Also Rises, Old Man in the Sea, Room of the Bell Tolls. I never read, funnily enough, I have never read Farewell to Arms. I didn't get through it for whatever reason, but... Uh, yeah, I really, re- I really liked Hemingway when I first discovered him. <laughs> I, uh, I remember listening to, I actually listened to this book the first time, and I remember I, I would listen to it on my way home to work on a cassette that I would play in my car, and I would end up oftentimes just uh, staying in the car, you know, for an extra hour just, just to, to listen to the story. You know, I should have just gone in and played the cassette, but it was one of those things where you just don't move because you're engrossed. I, I did come to it from a different place this time, but I suppose we'll talk about that as we go on. So... Let's get into this story. We take you now to a Parisian uh, dance hall. Jake Menzel sits grasping his absinthe <coughs> drinking his absinthe and ordering more absinthe when suddenly a mysterious stranger comes up to him and says say what you reading there reading for whom the bell tolls by Ernest Hemingway oh that looks pretty interesting what's that about that's about this four days or three or four days in the life of this guy in the Spanish Civil War and what he deals with as he looks at the possibility of death square in the face. That sounds pretty neat. <laughs> Suddenly, oh. a virile man <laughs> joins them at the table. It's none other than Brandon Chastine. Hello. <laughs> he wipes the bull blood from his hands and orders a drink. Absinthe. <laughs> Dry. Wait. <laughs> Without rocks. I don't know how you do this. <laughs> Neat. 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 Blows up. <laughs> it's put down on the table. The the shaggy looking, annoying guy that's bugging Jake says, "What do you know about this book, sir? This gentleman here tells me it's about a fellow that deals for four days with his own death." <laughs> Oh, he also deals with love. Love, eh? Women. Women? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> this book sounds a little bit more exciting. Yeah. He deals with uh, fighting, courage. He deals with war. War. Lots of war. Does he have a positive view of war or a negative view of war? Yes. That is interesting. <laughs> Ask me that question. <laughs> Just making conversations, sir. Yeah. I think he's right. Yes, he has a negative and a positive view of war. We leave the Parisian nightclub. It's terrible. What are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's talk about Robert Jordan. Brandon, who is Robert Jordan? He's a young man. How old? I, I don't think it really specifies. I, maybe I, wanted, I would have thought it was early, as old as like 30 or something. But Yeah, I, I got the impression sure. he was around our age. Right. He's a professor or at least a, an instructor of Spanish. In the University of Montana, is that right? Yeah, I thought or he was at, least, at a community college. Well, Montana's in where he's dreaming about going back Missoula, to yeah. at some point. So, but he's an instruct. He's he's has his some sort of degree, higher education. It doesn't. I don't even know if it specifies if he's a doctor or a 
Does it? I'm not sure. I don't think so. Yeah, this is strange. You would think you don't get these sort of details, which probably says something to Hemingway's style. But yeah, he's he's a grad student of some sort. He's caught up in the romanticism of what's happening with the Spanish Revolution, and he decides to volunteer as a dynamiter and goes over and um, participates in a few smaller skirmishes and then sent out on his own to be with these people in the hills to try and blow up a bridge in what is most likely, in his mind, to be the only and last thing he does in this war. He's caught up with all these questions of death and his father's death, and interestingly, the book describes him as being fairly cold, right, and fairly distant from what's happening. Mm-hmm. And so he he develops through that, and the book plays with how he gets out of that coldness. He's, he's so introspective, and yet at the same time, he's he has to do a whole bunch of juju of self-deception with himself in order to get done what he's bought into an ideal, and he's bought into a mindset that goes along with that ideal, and he has to fight himself to maintain that mindset so that he can live up to his ideals. And that's really the struggle of his character all the way through. And so I, on I the one know. on the one hand, you want to uh, there's something admirable about the fact that he wants to do his duty. And he wants to have the mindset that is going to allow him to do his duty. And you admire his grasp of people and to some extent his grasp of reality. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, there's this unwillingness to really face reality. Hmm. Well, why do you guys think that Robert Jordan is fighting? At one point he says that he's not a socialist, you know, Mm -hmm. just in one of his interior monologues, you know, he says, I'm not, he's not even real clear in the book what the ideal is. He obviously loves Spain. He loves the people of Spain, but what is this ideal? I mean, he's seen, he's seen how corrupted the bureaucracy is. He's learned the ways of the world and been disappointed by them to some degree. And yet he's still willing to give his life to this cause. And how do we put our fingers on, or do we put our fingers on? Why? Maybe he's just something of a humanist where he he believes in people. We have that central chapter about the Russian... Um, Oh, what's his name? The Krakow or whatever his what? friend, his friend Krak- Krakow, yeah. Karkov, maybe Karkov. That's yeah. it, Karkov in that in the hotel where they're all staying. Mm. What was the name of that place? Oh, I don't know. Gaylord. The, Gaylord, the Gaylord. Yeah, this guy is some sort of instructor and teacher to Robert Jordan, and so in that chapter, you get the impression that he came. He was very enthusiastic. He was very much caught up in the excitement of this cause. And Karakov provides some sort of disillusionment to an extent for him, but also then drives him towards writing and towards honest observation. Because there's that thing that Karakov says about him, that he enjoys reading his writing because he gets at the truth, right? There's some sort of truth about it. So Robert Jordan seems like a guy that's able to see things fairly accurately. But then, yeah, I think Jake's right when Jake says he has to maintain a certain level of romantic illusion in order to even keep going there's the chapter near the end where he is excited and pilar asks him what's going on and he says well he thinks that things are going very well right and Mm -hmm. so you get the sense that even there he's 
kind of lying to himself. Well, I like that scene, one of his last scenes with Maria, where they're in their pine needle bed together, and Hemingway does a really nice job of tracing his interior monologue, where she's prattling on about their, how their life is going to be, and he's willing to give into it, and he sort of wills himself to give into that fantasizing with her, and then he comes out of it, and he kind of despises himself, but is willing to still say the words, even though they're meaningless. And then he gets into it again. And so I think I found that to be a recognizable thing. I've been in that situation where I step outside of myself, I see how silly I am in, and then I dive back into myself and I'm, I'm back in the emotion of the situation. And then I'm out again. Yeah. The way that Hemingway deals with interior monologue throughout the whole book is, is really great that way. And tracing Jordan's thoughts as he interacts with people, as he's thinking, trying to get into the heads of other people. Well, that scene's a really, really great example of it, too. I just felt like I'd lived that scene in particular. All the interior monologues, I agree, are great. But I've, I've had that moment where I'm suddenly disillusioned with with something that I'm in the middle of. And then I, sometimes I'm able to get back into it. Sometimes I'm not. Sometimes I force myself back into it. That was just a nice observation that I think Hemingway has about how the brain of someone like that works. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're talking about the chapter where he's keeps saying making believe. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then he says, but this time there was no slipping into make believe again. Now he was just lying to his girl and to himself to pass the night before battle, and he knew it. Mm-hmm. And then he comes back into it. Yeah. yeah. And then he goes back into the make believe. It had him now, and again he surrendered and went on. Right. Somebody who was the critic, maybe you know Brandon, that came up with the term code hero. You know that one? No. So there's some critic from Hemingway's day, I think, that said Hemingway's heroes are code heroes. And, uh, what, C-O-D-E. C-O-D-E. As opposed to what? Coat. Oh, coat heroes. Yeah. They wore coats. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, no, no. Code. Like, they, they have a code. And the most important thing for them is to be committed to this code and to prove their awesomeness through this code. And it doesn't ultimately really matter what the external details are, what it is that they're actually dealing with. They could be a guy fighting a bull. It could be a guy that has to blow up a bridge. It could be a guy that just has to make it through another day as a scarred kind of war veteran like the guy in Sun Also Rises. It could be all kinds of things that these guys have to do, but what they do is they move forward with a code, and that's kind of, I guess, one way of understanding Robert Jordan is that he doesn't really care about the cause, but what he does care about is living up to the standards that he's set for himself that Hemingway set for him and that's why he's you know he's always comparing himself to is he going to be his grandfather or is he going to be his father is he going to flinch in the face of death or is he going to be courageous and um so there's a kind of existential pessimism i guess to it i mean there's a kind of you're going to die it's going to be absurd whatever you're fighting for is pointless but you can redeem it somewhat by having a standard for yourself and living up to it, which is what these characters, which is what the hero of a Hemingway novel often does. Uh, The the critic said, he will not win, but he will play the game on his own terms Mm -hmm. and maintain his grace under pressure. That's what Hemingway called courage, was grace under pressure, even under death. So what makes a hero is setting terms, setting your own terms, really whatever you want them to be, and then following those, living up to those. Hmm. And so Pablo fails at first because he doesn't want to look death in the face and doesn't want to see the certainty of it mm-hmm. and stand his ground. He takes the bag, he throws it 
But then he comes back, right? Right. And there's some, you know, the redemption moment for Pablo is coming back. And you get the nice moment at the end where he and Robert Jordan share knowing glances. Mm -hmm. Right. But then Pablo's going to murder those guys for their horses or whatever. So it's always, it's always kind of sticky with him. Yeah. With Pablo, you see what Anselmo said about the effect that killing has on you. Pablo's an interesting character as far as his code goes. Because there's a he there's the scene when he's drunk and he says that if he could he would bring all of the people he killed back to life. Remember that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where there's um he regrets that. That's his regret. Is the barb the barbari- barbarity of it, but also just the killing. So if the code is anywhere, I guess it's with these scenes where people are facing death. Mm-hmm. So you see it with um the men who die on the hill. El Sordo's men yeah. and Joaquin. Joaquin. And, and even with the men that have to walk the gauntlet, Pablo's gauntlet, you know, we yeah. see we see different reactions. The guy that's really scared and pathetic and the guy that's and doesn't want to, you know, they have to drag him out. And the guy that will nobly hold his head high and walk the walk the line. Then one of the interesting characters to compare to Robert Jordan in this case would be Lieutenant Berendo. Mm-hmm. Because I think that I think Hemingway wants you to. Mm-hmm. They're the last two people that meet in the novel, but Berendo is also the one who orders them to cut off the heads. But then he says war is a nasty business, right? He doesn't like it. He doesn't stay to watch. So what do you think is going on with that? Well, if we're defining courage as grace under pressure, then I think Berendo might actually come out looking pretty well. I mean, yeah. especially compared to that stupid captain or whatever that gets himself shot during... Shoot me! Yeah, hey, guys, that guy. Yeah. Um, you know, Berendo is able to keep a cool head and just do what he has to do. In his case, cut off people's heads, you know, to bring back some trophies or whatever it is he needs to do. It felt to me a little bit like he was a reverse image. You know, he's the Robert Jordan of the other side, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't end up feeling a lot of hatred for him or... No, and I don't think you're supposed to because... It's interesting that with Pilar's story, you see the evils that the revolutionaries did. You don't see the evils that the fascists did, right? Right. She says that she would tell that story later, but you never see, you never hear that side of the story. Right? Well, you hear Maria's story, which is pretty awful. Yeah. And you finally do get to hear that, and you do hear her part of the story, right? But it's not but, half as bad but, as I mean, I guess the gang rape aspect of it is pretty bad, but the. Her parents dying is significantly less awful if one can rank such things than what Pablo does to those those people. Yeah, where you see that society in that case isn't any better. It just breaks down into the anarchy and the rule of the drunkards. Yeah, I guess there, there's a sense of futility mm-hmm. in the novel. If you think about it in comparison to some of the other war books, or even, I guess, compared to some of the other stuff that would be written by guys who are in his own generation in completely different fields thinking of the lord of the rings here it's really silly but like helm's deep it feels like there's something at stake that can be won mm. here it doesn't feel like there's anything at stake that can be won it feels like it's a lost cause the only thing that you can do is take the right stand right and die in the right way and hope that there's some sort of joy that comes out of it some sort of happiness some something that you get beyond well, and Hemingway seems to be saying with Robert Jordan that there is, because Robert Jordan is content at the end of his life. He's yeah. he's he's happy to die, basically. Mm-hmm. He even kind of embraces it. 
Well, yeah, you said existentialism. Right. And with Robert Jordan, I think you see that the most clear because one of the last things you get with him is he touches the pine tree right, mm-hmm. with his hand and he feels it. And so this sense awareness, I think Hemingway is really playing up on just the moment being better than worrying too much about the past or the future because when he worries about those things, it doesn't do much for him. All he has is this moment before he dies and if he's going to do it well or not. And so he can think about keeping his bone from poking through his muscle. Right. He can fill a tree for the last time and then he can wait. And instead of shooting himself, he can take a few of them with him and maybe give his comrades a chance to get that much farther away. And that's, that's seems to be about the height of heroism that you're going to get from this. Yeah. I think it is just straight up existential. Really. I mean, it's, you can make life is absurd. You're going to die. There's nothing after, but right now, this very moment, you can either choose to make your own meaning or not. Mm-hmm. And there's something heroic about that struggle to, to, to make your own meaning. Might be kind of dim-witted of me, but it's just, I haven't really thought of it that way before. I think you're right. I think that's the strongest thread to pull it together because then the high moments like him with Maria and the world turning and then all this other stuff that you get through Robert Jordan begins to make sense. His disillusionment that he has with the gay lord. Because mm-hmm. I'm convinced that chapter is important. Right. It's right in the middle of the book or near the middle of the book. Actually, the exact middle of the book, I think, is Pilar's story. Right. So you have that and then you have the story of what happened to him and the gay lord. And I think the thread is what's going to come out in the late, later 40s and 50s when you get existentialism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you better make the most of now because tomorrow you're going to die. Well, someone like Hemingway wants to take away everything that we could possibly ascribe Robert Jordan's heroism to. You know, it's like he's not doing it for the country. You know, these these we see that the peasants are a nasty bunch of people. Basically, we see that the cause is futile. We see that the bureaucracy of the people that are running the war is is going to destroy it anyway. It's, it's like there's nothing to really believe in except for yourself. And whatever yeah. it is that you make of now, now, now. I mean, doesn't he even say like there? Doesn't Robert Jordan even say something like there was only now? Isn't that actually a sentence in the book? Well, yeah, it's a sex scene. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, where he's yeah, the word now, over and over again. Oh, no. But the, I don't want to go into detail with them, but that is probably what the <laughs> the clearest way to analyze them is that they're this philosophy of the now. Mm-hmm. And they bring out the now more than, and they almost, those scenes almost eviscerate reality so that all that's left is just your feelings. Right. Time stops right. and the world turns. And and so alcohol then fits into this pretty well because, you know, he's sad at the end because he doesn't have his absinthe, right? That one last little pleasure is taken from him. But then I, you could argue that he discovers, he matures finally at the end to realize that, well, the world can be his alcohol. Right. <laughs> right. Touching the tree can be his drink. Mm-hmm. Hemingway, you say all these things, but then Hemingway is really good at these small little gestures like the touching the tree. And, yeah. You know, thinking about someone about to die and then that's... Just to feel the... You know, just yeah. the sense, feeling of touching the tree mm-hmm. before you are shot to death. That's pretty haunting well, but in the end it's it's an empty philosophy yeah i mean because what hope what's the hope here what's it's kind of it's hollow well it's the philosophy that led to hemingway shooting himself so yeah that's as, and ezra pound 
Um, I said he was the father of all this. He he ended up in an, in a cage, crazy, and then an asylum, right? Yeah, Hemingway had to come and get him out of the cage and took him to the asylum and helped. I mean, it was he's an interesting character to study of where this really leads. How would we talk about Robert Jordan's relationship to his father and his grandfather? I couldn't help but think about Steinbeck in that chapter hmm. in East of Eden and the differences. The differences um, being what? Well, one of the differences being that they're, his grandfather and his father here, they're in a chapter, and that's basic, that's pretty much it. You get hints of them later on, and you get the sense of that chapter that you can go back and see how they kind of are the undercurrent to the story here, his fear that he'll become his father. He despises his father, and he admires his grandfather, and yeah. part of trying to escape his father is trying to live up to his grandfather, be the kind of man that his grandfather would be proud of because it doesn't matter if dad was proud of him. He's ashamed of dad and has been for a long time ever since he went away to school. But grandfather was somebody different. And so one, one lens to filter this all through is just daddy issues. Why is he in Spain fighting? He's trying to live up to his grandfather who had his own war to fight a different civil war because his dad shot himself in the head and you know I, I don't know I don't know I thought it was interesting because I I don't know how much I consciously measure myself against my father obviously my father had a huge impact on my life but I don't oftentimes find myself thinking about him in moments of action or of crisis I don't find myself comparing myself to him and I didn't know whether that was something that other people did quite a bit of, whether that was something that was really specific to Robert Jordan or that was a universal thing that I just don't happen to recognize or what. <laughs> that's, question. that's loaded. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> guys, explain fathers and sons to me. <laughs> yeah, obviously you, you measure yourself against your father. Right. Um, you think about who he is and who you are and how that's all related. Hi, Dad, because he probably listens to this podcast. <laughs> well, you're, you're either trying to... Um, you should just ask him, how, does, how do you, how hey, do you think dad. Brandon measures up to you? Most sons, they're either trying to live up to their dad, mm-hmm. or they're trying to show their dad wrong. Which is what Robert Jordan is doing. Mm-hmm. And, um, or they're just saying, forget you, I don't need you. And that's another way of showing dad. And um, so whether it's conscious or, or not, it's always there beneath the surface. It's always there for any son. And you, so even if you're not consciously thinking of your dad, well, that's in itself a reaction right. in one way or another to your dad. Well, and I realize there are men in my life that I do compare myself to, older men. Yeah. They might not be my biological father but I do have certainly father figures there are father figures and they do function in the way that and when they're gone they're going to be there in the back of your head Mm -hmm. would he approve what would he say you know what what would he think about this now or what would so and so think about this now or you know you get some of that perspective now I'm at the age that my father was at you know Mm -hmm. at this point you know as a father you go through that right now I'm I'm the age now that my dad was when I was five or, right. or whatever. And now I have a five-year-old and, right. or whatever it is. Uh, here's a question for you as a pastor, Jake. 
if your wife is nagging you and bullying bullying you, should you kill yourself with a gun from the Civil War? No. No. No, he shouldn't. Okay. <laughs> what else do- <laughs> um, Jake, did you like Robert Jordan? I did like Robert Jordan. Why? I recognized myself in him. I sympathized with him. I, you know, he walks into a room and he's processing people the way that uh, he lives in his head, the way that he um, is sizing people up, the way that he's sizing himself up, the way that he's fighting with himself and talking to himself, the way that he's processing his emotions, processing his thoughts. All of that was very real to me. I recognized myself in it. So that's one aspect of why I liked him. Another aspect is that I just, whatever we can say about his ideals, he he seems to be a truly uh, sincere guy cut from a you know an old-fashioned sort of cloth. He's sort of... I was just comparing him off mic to you, uh, comparing him to to Steve Rogers, to Captain America, in a sense. It's just that instead of America being his awesome ideal, it's, it's who, who, knows? who knows? It's something it's his, else. It's his code, whatever it is. That, right, yeah. But he is living up to something. He is striving for something, which makes him kind of seem pretty old-fashioned. Yeah, yeah, he's thinking. he's striving for something that he thinks is bigger than himself. He's sincere. He's he's trying to be to do what he thinks is the right thing. Uh, he's conscientious about it. He's trying to master his his passions when they don't serve his cause. And uh those are sort of those are heroic things. Those are admirable things, I think. Now you said a second ago that you really empathized or sympathized with or saw yourself in the way that he sized up a room and his interior monologues, all that kind of stuff. Do you think everybody sees themselves or do you think it's you? Um, As I, that's something I wondered about because I felt the same way. Like, I really know how this, this – the way Hemingway describes how this guy thinks is amazing. Yeah. But, I, I think it's a lot of people. I don't think it's everybody. Um, I think some people are a lot more self-conscious than others. Um, some people aren't self-conscious at all, and they're just in a room, and they just do what they do. And I, you sort of see that reflected in some of the characters that he's sizing up, right? right? And so um, he and Pilar are on the same wavelength. They recognize each other. They recognize that they both see. And Pablo is a wild card, and, and they know that. And then there are other people. and You don't know how much self-awareness Maria has, for example. It doesn't seem right. Like- a lot in a way she's able to be innocent because she doesn't have it. Fernando has zero self awareness. Yeah. I think it's him. That I forget, I get their names mixed up. The gypsy is Raphael. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's the one that says obscenity this, obscenity that. Augustin. No, no, no. Augustin. Sorry, Augustin. Augustin. He's the one who has all the obscenities. Augustin. Right. <clears throat> he. Uh, I think Fernando is the guy that's like he's the well. Why did the bullfighter not yeah, yeah, do the just, thing? He's the guy that's there to say the <laughs> obvious thing that everyone. Yeah, and everybody just wants to smack <laughs> him. Right. Which know. is the wooden Indian, the dime store. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. a dime store Indian. Exactly, a cigar yeah. store. And cigar store Indian. That's yeah, it. yeah. Did you find yourself? Did you have the same experience, Brandon, that me and Jake did of of really recognizing yourself in the interior monologues and the the yeah. way that Robert Jordan processed things? Yeah, I did. Yeah, in a similar way to what Jake was saying. Just Hemingway's very good at living inside Robert Jordan's head. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the scenes where 
well, the one that you were mentioning, the make-believe scene earlier. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the better portrayals of it where it's just this long interior monologue that Jordan is thinking through. And it echoes with, you know, it resonates with what I experience in myself. Mm-hmm. The same chapter where he's thinking about his grandfather and his father. Mm-hmm. Right? It, it comes out of him realizing that everything's done and he's sitting there <clears throat> and he's waiting on the following morning. And this is when he starts to process um, his relationship to his grandfather and to his father. Of course, these things are going to come up to him now. Right? And he's fighting with himself as he does it because he's trying to not make too much meaning out of it. And he's trying to not get too mm-hmm. sentimental. And he's not. Yeah. And he recognizes himself doing it. He sees what he's doing right. to himself. And he's trying to evaluate as he follows the, the tracks. Yeah. As he's on the train, he's trying to evaluate, is this in service of my cause or not? Mm-hmm. Do I need to kill it? Can I go here? Is it safe to go here? Or is this going to take away my nerve? Or is this going to make me too emotional or sentimental so that I can't do what I, what I need to do? So he's, even as he goes down those roads, he's, he's watching himself do it, and he's fighting with himself. Yeah, his self-awareness was something that I really recognized and resonated with, and his de- self-deprecation as well. You know, just the yeah. whole kind of, Jordan, old man, you've got to... Forget about this. You've got to, you know. Yeah, that, stop it. That stop it. Set, just nope, stop can't it. can't go there. You know, nope. I find myself doing that to myself more and more through the years. You you had an interesting point, Jake, the other day when we were talking uh, off mic about basically if a tree falls in the forest, is there, no one's there to hear it. Does it make a sound? If, if Robert Jordan is being awesome and no one's there to observe him being awesome, is he actually Awesome. <laughs> I don't know how you, you remember what I'm talking well, about. Well, I think what I was trying to say, when you're writing a character like Hemingway writes a character, that character has the advantage of not having to live before an audience and to not have his thoughts or his feelings about things made known to anybody the way that m- most people feel a need to be known or to be recognized. You have the ability to remove that aspect maybe of somebody's humanity and that's not to say that there aren't people that can be truly dis- awesome disinterested not care what anybody thinks but i find it strange when you don't see at least a character like robert jordan struggle with the idea that nobody's going to care nobody's going to know it doesn't matter and maybe that says more about me than it does about hemingway or robert jordan but you're just a vain pop and jay that that i need everybody to know how awesome you're being if you're gonna blow up a bridge then you needed an audience yeah yeah maybe that's maybe that's true certainly you know if you're gonna be a total existentialist about it yeah nothing matters anyway it's everybody's gonna die everything will be forgotten who cares i make my own meaning and um, so i'm content in the moment and that's good enough for me these pine needles are good enough for me (laughs) that's a really rosy idealistic uh view so you don't buy the ending I buy how vivid everything can become in the moment. I buy how real. I buy a certain degree of resignation possibly sometimes. But where's the fear of God and death and judgment that hangs over everybody's head? Where is that in Robert Jordan? Is it, is it so far suppressed that it doesn't bubble up at all? I believe that people can suppress that truth that deeply. That it wouldn't come out even at their death. Maybe, yeah. Because he's facing it in. I mean, there's this is a death that he gets to think of for a period of half what an was hour. Hemingway, what was Hemingway's blood alcohol content when he shot himself? High. A couple glasses of wine, I know. 
he couldn't do that in cold blood, right? Mm-hmm. Not not without right. drugging himself up. Okay, uh, well, let's talk real quick about Pilar. Did you guys did you like her? <laughs> yes, <Boy>. I did <laughs> like her. Pilar. Pilar. I had trouble with her, actually, because I thought Hemingway was kind of casting her as the voice of reason. Yeah. And I wasn't sure whether she was really a very good voice of reason at all. But she can only be as good a voice of reason as Hemingway is. Right, and he's a, he's a crummy voice of reason. She's a voice of reason, but then Pablo also, what is he, the voice of what's ra- what's realistic? Right. He's your inner demon. You can sort of cast them as the demon on one shoulder and the angel on the other mm. who sort of unite in the end to get the job done. Yeah. You kind of need both of them. Because she's committed to the cause. Mm-hmm. She's not going to sway, but he knows where it's all headed. Right. And he has no doubts about it, and he's right. Oh, there's the weirdness about her reading his palm. You know, she says it's going to snow, and he says, no, it's not going to snow, and then it starts snowing. She's... We we understand that she saw the future. I mean, my understanding was she knew Robert Jordan Marie was going to die. She knew he was going to have this time, and so she pushed, she pushed Maria on him. Yeah, so what are we supposed to make of it? I don't that know. She saw his death in his hand. Who cares? Hemingway's Who cares? wrong. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, well, really, he gives us an angel and a devil that are both lame. If Pilar's the angel, then she's the angel of, you're going to die, life sucks, so have as much sex as you can before you do. If Pablo's the demon, then he's the demon of, life sucks, you're going to die, so... Run away. Run away. <laughs> so, what a wonderful choice to have. Yeah, I think Jake's right. Who cares? Yeah, I think Jake is right. Who cares? Today was written and produced by Nathan Alberson. It was performed by Nathan Alberson, Brandon Chastain, and Jake Metzel. Uh, if you want more amazing content like this, you can go to warhornmedia.com. We've got all the back episodes of our amazing podcast and also great articles by people. You can hit me up on Twitter at, at NotFamousNathan. You can hit Jake Metzel at, up at, at Jacob Metzel on Twitter. You can send us a Twitter, send us a tweet, get in our feed. You can hit Brandon up at my email. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Oh man! I probably should get that fixed. <laughs>